Imagine having an idea for a product you just know will be a hit, but you don't have the means to make it real. Then, one day, a friend sends you a Craigslist ad that reads, Do you have a nice, big, million-dollar idea, but lack the funding and know-how to make it happen? So you answer the ad, and before you know it, you're flying to L.A., where you find yourself on a stage under Klieg lights, pitching your idea to a group of billionaire investors you've never met, obviously. Cue that record scratch. Hey, you might be thinking, this doesn't sound like a flop story. That sounds like a big break. Sometimes, though, success and failure aren't as clear-cut as we think. Sometimes, people who look successful from the outside may be tangling with failure behind the scenes. While we usually focus on epic failures on this podcast, sometimes failure is more of a setback. It's not a full-on pavement faceplant, but more of a stumble. Today's guest failed because she didn't know what she didn't know. As a new entrepreneur with a great idea for a product, she had a lot of learning to do, but she had to do it in a really public way. You see, today's guest was a contestant on the pilot episode of the TV show Shark Tank. If you're not familiar with Shark Tank, it's a show where budding entrepreneurs get up in front of a team of potential investors and pitch their product ideas. The investors interrogate them, and if they're interested in backing the product idea, they haggle with the inventors for a cut of the business. Maybe you've heard of the Ring Doorbell. It's a really successful product, a smart doorbell camera that lets you see and talk to the person who's ringing your doorbell right from an app on your phone. Back in 2013, the Ring's inventor, Jamie Siminoff, pitched his idea for the video doorbell, which at the time he called the Doorbot. Unfortunately, none of the sharks wanted to invest in it, and Jamie walked away empty-handed. But over the next five years, he turned his startup into a broader smart home security tech company, changed the name of the product to Ring, and sold it to Amazon for a reported $1 billion. In February 2018, Shark Tank investor Kevin O'Leary said that the ring was probably the, quote, biggest miss, end quote, in the show's history. Now, that's an impressive failure. Today, we journey in waters where the sharks are friendly, but other unseen dangers lurk for our intrepid entrepreneur until they strike and nearly capsize her. This is Flops. Welcome to Flops, where we uncover what happens when business plans go up in smoke and what we can learn from sifting through the ashes. I'm Karen Beatty. And I'm Ray Sylvester. And we are the content team at SPI Media, a company that helps entrepreneurs build the skills and community they need to succeed. And Karen, I am looking forward to hearing your interview today with Tiffany Crummins. This was a really fun interview. You know, when she told us that she was on the pilot episode of Shark Tank, mm -hmm. we could not pass up this interview. <laughs> but, you know, to be honest, we almost didn't know if this story was flops worthy. It's true. Yeah, it's something that we wrangled with on this one. And obviously, we decided to ultimately share Tiffany's story. And, you know, Karen, I don't know if you feel this way, too, but doing a podcast about failure has been really interesting territory for me 
because it's been, you know, it's forced us to make editorial decisions that can feel a little yeah. strange like this, like judging if someone someone flopped hard enough, you know? Yeah, yeah. But that said, don't worry, listeners, there's definitely uh, some juicy failure in today's episode. Yeah, you know, on the surface, this seems like a success story, and it is. You know, she was on Shark Tank, so that's great, right? Yeah. But we decided to run with this interview because she experienced a pretty big failure in the midst of that success. And so we really wanted to touch on the fact that success includes failure, and that's really all part of the journey. Yeah. And like Jason's episode, Jason Myers' episode last week, Tiffany's story also has to do with a, a big break of sorts, obviously, with Shark Tank. You could argue that Tiffany made out maybe a little better than Jason did, but not that we need to compare. But all that said, why don't we let our listeners decide just how big a flop Tiffany's failure really was? Okay, sounds good. Let's get to it. Let's do it. Okay, Tiffany, welcome to the show. We're so glad to have you here. Yeah. So we're looking forward to hearing your story. But before we go into your story, which I find really fascinating from what I've heard so far, I just wanted you to tell me a little bit about yourself. Where did you grow up and where do you live now? Sure. So I grew up in Auburn, Georgia, a tiny little town here that I actually referenced on the first episode of Shark Tank. Kind of struggled in school, kind of like the classic, you hear of people that are successful that did not do so well in school, but they were creatives. And so... Later in my life, that creativity served me really well. I invented a product, Ava the Elephant, and pitched it on the very first ever episode of Shark Tank, the pilot, before we knew what the show was, before it was named, before I knew who I was even pitching to, and I flew out to California. And that led me down an unexpected path of product development. So I launched that first product, and now I launch countless other products 10 years later. Wow, that is Amazing. So what were you doing before you ended up on Shark Tank? I was a caregiver for children with special needs. And I was working with a particular little boy who I'd been with for about three and a half years, and he struggled with medication. And so when I came up with the the product, it was only to help him. It was not initially to launch a product. I didn't know anything about launching products. It wasn't even on my radar at the time, but he struggled really bad. And so I went to Hobby Lobby one night and bought a bunch of stuff and put together this little elephant that would hide his medicine dropper. And I took it to work the next day and it actually worked. And I thought, wow, that's pretty incredible because he had a a really hard time with it. We had to restrain him and all kinds of stuff. So yeah, I knew I had something special on my hands. Yeah. So how did you end up on Shark Tank? A friend of mine learned about the story of this product that I'd created just for me telling her about what happened. And she emailed me a Craigslist ad of all things. They were using Craigslist at the time to cast and had said, do you have the next big million dollar idea, but you don't have the funding and the know-how to make it happen. And I thought, you know, of of Ava and thought, you know, yes, I think I do. So I auditioned for the show. Wow. So what was that process like? It was a long process. It's not as long as it is now. It's obviously extremely complicated now. The contract I signed was about an inch thick. And now I think it's like four inches thick. So it's (laughs) changed a lot over the years, but it was still very, a lot of people submitted. So it was something where I didn't know a lot about what I was pitching to. Again, I just knew there were investors. I was going to go out to California if I made it. And I was going to stand in front of them, pitch my idea in the hopes of taking home an investment. That's really all the only thing I knew. Yeah. So then you were accepted on the show and you flew out to California. So what was that like? Like just, you know, doing this pilot episode? 
Yeah. It, well, it's funny because a lot of people kind of glamorize that, but when you're on a pilot episode, it's not funded yet. So it is just an idea of a show. So there's no funding behind it, no funding and backing. And so we flew ourselves. I flew myself out. It was just a thing of them saying, you know, do you want to buy a ticket and come go, you know, gamble for this basically? And I said, yeah. So it wasn't fancy. The set was totally different because it was the pilot. It had not been sold to ABC yet. So my experience was kind of unique and and that I saw the the beginning stages of it. And it was terrifying. Obviously, I I went into (laughs) this giant set in Culver City, California, and didn't know what the set even looked like, you know, before I went on it because it was the first one of the show. So we didn't know what the show was. And they basically opened an elevator door and said, you're going to walk out of this elevator door. You're going to walk down to an X. You're going to stand in front of these five people and you do not talk for gosh, I think it was four or five minutes it took for them to get all the cameras right. They were going to give me a cue of when I could start my actual pitch. And you have to stand there and stare at these people you've never met before that you're about to pitch to without talking, without fainting, you know, and that's what I did. Had you practiced your pitch extensively before you went on? I had, and I had done a lot of having people poke holes in it. So I wanted them to really not you know, kill me with kindness as family and say, oh, it's great. You know, really try to give me some feedback that was constructive so that I could be prepared if they did that. And sure enough, they did. Mm -hmm. So yeah. So tell me what happened. So your idea was Mm -hmm. funded. So like, how did that happen? And how did that feel? Right. Ava the Elephant was funded by Barbara Corcoran. There were four gentlemen on the, in the shark pool, if you will, four gentlemen sitting in front of me and then Barbara Corcoran and all of the gentlemen said no to Ava. They were all very kind, actually very gracious compared to how they are now, but they did say no, they did not want to fund the product. And part of that was they didn't get it. You know, they weren't the wives Mm -hmm. at home. They weren't the women at home, you know, giving medication. And so Barbara understood, she got it. She has multiple children and she instantly got it. She invested. We had an instant bond when we met on the show, which was pretty profound because we kept that bond. And then she invested for seven years until we licensed the product. So for our listeners, since we can't show the product, can you kind of explain what it's like and what it does? Absolutely. Yeah. And it actually has sound, so I can play that. So Ava is a little elephant face that hides the medical syringe. So you fill up the syringe with medication, you slide it into the back of the head of this elephant, and now the medicine is hidden and not so terrifying. And then you press this button and this is the song that she sings. (laughs) So she sings a little song and then usually... Toddlers always have her ears, her big pink ears in their hands by then and the trunk in their mouth, you know, sucking or wanting to eat on it anyway. So yeah, I find that they want to run around the house and play with it and press the button constantly. At least my kids do. Yeah, it's adorable. I wish I, my daughter's 11. I wish I would have had one of those when she was little. Yeah. (laughs) Because it is really hard to get medicine in them. So that's adorable. So your product was funded. And so this could be seen as a success story. Right. And this podcast is all about failure. So um, I I think we're going to get to that in a minute. But so what happened? So it was funded. So you started making the product. And then what happened? And if you could tell a little bit how you ended up kind of in your failure story. Yes, yes, definitely. So when I got the funding on Shark Tank, I went home and was clueless. I mean, I I was very naive to what it was going to take the, you know, what the process was going to be like. I didn't know what type of manufacturing my product needed. I didn't know anything about product development. 
And so I had to come home and learn it. The funny thing was, Barbara is a pro at this now. She's 11 seasons into Shark Tank. She's invested in hundreds, if not thousands of products. But at the time, she was not. She was a real estate expert and, you know, had really taken over that world, but was new to products as well. So we were almost the blind leading the blind in the beginning. She didn't know much about the rules of retail either. And it's, it's one of those weird industries that no matter how much money you have, it doesn't make it any easier on you. If anything, it could make mm-hmm. it worse because you could go in and get really bad deals because you're paying these different slotting fees or whatever it might be because they know you have the money. So it doesn't, it doesn't give you a heads up or anything if you are a celebrity, really. You're going to get the same retail deals. And so that's what happened with us is we basically went out to find our first retailers. And I've had a lot of failures along the way. I've had a lot of huge victories appearing on Dr. Oz and doing all these incredible things that led to a lot of sales. But I've also had a lot of failures. And one of the biggest ones was when Barbara and I got one of our first major retailers, we didn't know um, how that should be set up. And so we went into this meeting with a buyer thinking it was as simple as winning over the buyer, him liking the product and him agreeing to put our product in all the stores. And that's exactly what happened. He agreed, you know, Mm -hmm. he loved the product. He wanted it in all the stores. But what we didn't know was there's something called a planogram. And the planogram is basically the the map of the store. It has such importance at retail because it means when the products are shipped into that retailer, the manager and the employees in that store will know exactly where to put the product. And if you're not on that planogram, your box will be back in the stock room and that's exactly where it will stay until it has a, a spot in that map. And so we did not get on that map at that first major retailer, even though we sold product into about 7,000 stores. Oh, wow. So I've never heard of the, the term planogram. <laughs> so yeah, I can yeah. imagine, I. <laughs> like, how do you know what you don't know when you're no, exactly. developing? Yeah, exactly. We were, clue- I mean, we just didn't know. And we kind of assumed, I mean, it was stupid of us, but we assumed, you know, we'll be next to Tylenol. We even talked about that some with the buyer. It was like, you know, children's Tylenol and Ava, that's the dispenser. Here's the medicine, you know, but it was just kind of this loose conversation. Little did we know it needed to be nailed down and it needed to be basically in what they use as their Bible of how to put it out in the store. And so, so that was the big, a huge mistake we made. Another one that worked along with that to lose us a lot of money was something called EDI. And it's basically, I think it's electronic data interface or something. I can't remember now because I just call it by that. But it basically tells you how your purchase orders come in from that company. So that big retailer gave us purchase orders and they came through this system called EDI. And if it's not set up properly and you do not ship exactly to its specs, you will lose money time and time again. And so a good example is like we ship a case into a store and it arrives on a, it arrives to one of their distribution centers on a Wednesday night instead of a Wednesday morning. They could do a deduction called a chargeback. And so they take money off of your invoice because it arrived at the wrong time. Too early, not even just too late, but too early. Is oh, wow. Which is weird. You would never think that. Yeah. It makes sense to me now because I know the logistics of all of it and how they're, they have to have everything just perfect. But you don't know that as a newbie and you go in thinking, oh, what's the big deal? You know, what's the chargeback here and there until you get your invoice and it's $75,000 off invoice. And so we took a $75,000 hit pretty early on because of those two mistakes combined because all of our Shark Tank fans were trying to find Ava and couldn't. She wasn't anywhere to be oh, found. Wow. We would get messages uh-huh. from people saying, I went to my local CVS and I couldn't find them. And eventually we found some in the back, like near the walking canes and the knee braces and like a really weird back corner. And like, it was a nightmare and it took quite a while to get sorted. 
So basically they were just putting the product anywhere in the store, not yes, in a so, logical place. Uh-huh. Anything that isn't okay. on that planogram does go anywhere in the store. So okay. if it wasn't in that planogram, if, you know, Tylenol, for example, it knows what they're doing. So they have their place in that planogram. Their box will always be right where you see it on that children's shelf, right? On the children's medication shelf. Whereas anything else that is not worked into that planogram, which we weren't, is going to just end up wherever, or it may be in the stock room still. Oh my gosh. So, so how do you get on the planogram? Like who does, who like is in charge of that? (laughs) So that buyer had the ability to put us on the planogram. We just didn't negotiate that with him. And sometimes you're paying for that. Like it, most people don't know this, but if you go into a grocery store, any kind of barbecue sausage, you know, anything that's going into grocery, you almost always pay to be on the planogram. So you're paying like a slotting fee just to get that spot. In this situation, you didn't pay for it, but still, yeah, you, you sometimes you're, there's times when you have to pay for the spot. Yeah. Okay. So Ava the elephant was stuck in the back room in boxes. <laughs> Poor Ava. Yeah. So, so how long did it take to fix this whole, you know, mistake or mess? As you can imagine, seven thousand stores. You know, working through a main buyer versus each individual store, it took quite some time. I don't want to say it was three or four months before it was actually all where we agreed it would be, you know, on the planogram because you had a lot of moving around to do and different agreements and whatnot. But that was a major hit because our Shark Tank episode aired. And so we had all of that press and attention around oh. it. So that it was just right at the worst possible time. We had just aired the very first episode of Shark Tank, basically. And I'd share my product. And then the website had said, go to CVS, you know, here it is. And then and it's stuck <laughs> back in the corner with the canes. Yeah. <laughs> Nobody uh, puts Ava in a corner, right? <laughs> oh, that's, yeah, that must've been really discouraging. So, so how did you recover yeah. from this? Like, so it sounded like you took a hit financially. How long did it take you to kind of recover? And where were you just like emotionally at this time? Were you just really discouraged? It was extremely challenging for me because I was actually battling cancer at the same time. So oh, wow. Yeah, it was it was a rough period. And I felt such a burden for Barbara because you know, Barbara's investing in me and she's investing and you know, we agreed to fifty thousand dollars on the show, but of course a product like this and, and medical product and manufacturing ended up being a bigger investment than she originally thought. And so it was stressful. It was a very stressful time because I was fighting for my life and then trying to figure out this crazy world of retail. But but we rebounded and we learned a lot from it. We knew and she knew from that experience never to fall into that again. You know, I mean, every yeah. one of her other deals was rock solid because of those mistakes. It just happened to happen on my company, unfortunately. But but we came back and we got we negotiated better deals because of it. We knew that every word of every document we worked with, you know, at retail needed to be tightened up. Mm-hmm. So how long was this period? Like when you went through this time, was it, did you say three months or was it longer than that? Well, I mean, by the time it felt like we caught up financially, it was probably a six month period. You know, Shark Tank of course helped because that exposure continued and continued. And so we had sales in other ways, but fixing a $75,000 loss is not easy, you know, especially when it's your first major retailer and your biggest investment in the company. So but we learned from that and went into other retailers and other countries and other languages and did all sorts of growth after, but it was a rough patch. And we had many others after that weren't quite as detrimental, but just things you don't know, you know, stuff like shipping mm-hmm. product. We manufactured overseas because most products do. 
And we had issues when we shipped, we used the wrong company in it. And he charged us for an entire container when we were only at that point, we were only shipping like half of a container. We didn't know that there were less than load shipments where you can pay for a portion and kind of share, you know, a a container with people. So it's just like you said at the beginning of the show, you don't know what you don't know. Sure. So tell me a little bit about where your company is now and, you know, what Ava the Elephant is doing and how she's doing. (laughs) kind of where your business has come from that point? Sure. So Ava the Elephant, Barbara and I ran the company for about seven years. And right around that time, we had just been riding this wave of Shark Tank, you know, because it brought so much press and so much exposure all around the world that it was as if it was new every month. It would air in a different country and they would see it like it was the first time and they'd write and say, you know, we want your product or congratulations. And they didn't know it was, you know, three years old. So we rode that way for a long time and it's still going, but we came to a point where it was, you know, we either need to manufacture other products with this and make this a bigger brand, or we need to sell it or license it. And so we took the licensing route. We licensed to a company called Baby Delight and we did that for three years and it was a fantastic deal. They were a great company. They actually redesigned the product, which the one I just showed you, which they can't see, but it it looks a lot different than it once did. It's got Mm -hmm. better features. It holds more medication. There's a lot of pros to it. And so they did that as part of their licensing agreement with them. And then that just ended. And I'm actually having calls now to discuss an acquisition. I might be selling off the entire company and oh, wow. staying on for the, the press side of it. Okay. Yeah. Wow. So that's, that's exciting. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah. But the licensing was key and licensing was such a great move for me because it allowed me to get, that was three years ago. And it allowed me to really move back into the creative space. I started a whole other company called Mom Genius, where we develop products and work with inventors. And I do a podcast called Product Genius. And so I got to get back into the part that I love, which is the actual, you know, coming up with the products and and executing them versus the day-to-day business management, which I don't really thrive at, obviously, by my stories. (laughs) (laughs) So what else did you learn from the whole experience? I learned that you must be very, very, very passionate about a product if you're going to go down this path. It is a brutal world to live in the the retail space, the product development space. It's not easy on you, as I've shared with these just a few stories out of many, many stories. And so you've got to be really, really passionate about what you're selling. If you're not, then you'll never survive. And I was passionate for a reason. You know, I mean, I knew I received countless messages from people, from moms saying my daughter had a you know, my tiny baby had a liver transplant and she needed to take, you know, 14 medications a day. And this is the only thing that entertained her enough to get them down, you know, and it was like little things like that or other children with special needs. So I go back to that. It doesn't have to be every household product. I go back to the ones that where it started for me, the heartfelt ones. And so other people have to have their heart connected to their product in some way. Sure. Sure. So what advice would you give other people who are creating physical products and are starting down this road of, you know, you know, similar to what you've done. Yeah. I would advise for them to learn as much as they can before they commit. I put together this little course on my website. It's just a very cheap little, and I say cheap because I try to make it really low price, but it's basically just showing people all the stuff I just described to you, plus a million other steps that I took from the day I got off of Shark Tank until I license my product. And I, I try to make it this just broad view of that journey so that people can see what all goes into launching a successful product. Because I think 
Shark Tank has been great and it's inspired people, but it's also kind of dumbed down the process to where people go, oh, it's just going to be that simple. You know, you know, I get the investment mm-hmm. and that's all I need. And the investment is the last thing you need in the beginning. You need to know a lot about what you're doing first. My advice to anybody thinking about launching your product would be to learn as much about the process as you can before you commit financially, before you go get patents. That's everybody's first thing is I want to trademark, I want a patent. Well, it's not worth anything if you don't actually launch a product and, and can't, you know, defend it. Sure. So are you still friends with Barbara? Yes. Yes. I'm still close <laughs> to Barbara. Yeah. yeah. So I'm surprised that you are almost business partners then, like in this whole thing. Yeah. 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 So she was like very hands-on. Yeah. She was in New York, definitely wasn't involved in the day-to-day. And that's not her role as an investor, obviously. And that's another, mm-hmm. I think, misconception people have. They think they'll get an investor and have help in that way. And they won't. They are there to invest money and maybe be a mentor like she was to me, but they're not there to run the day-to-day. So you've got to usually see that through yourself, sometimes without a salary. I mean, I didn't pull a salary for the first however many years, you know, I just kept mm-hmm. working and built the business. But yeah, she's fantastic. She's just been, she's kind of a dream. And I hate that when I talk to other people about, you know, finding investors, it's hard for me to advise because I had a weird situation with her, you know, sure. where we had a, a bigger bond, you know, it's not the typical investor relationship. Yeah. So can you think of any other failures that you've experienced in this whole journey that have taught you something? One of the ones that I talk about a lot is just being prepared for that next stage of growth. So I talk about fulfillment a lot. I've got a partner on my on my podcast called FSI. It's a fulfillment center here in Atlanta. And the reason I talk about that so much is because when you're not prepared, a lot of people I know want to get on, you know, the GMA deals and steals and they want to do all these, you know, these big exposure pieces or Dr. Oz as well. And they're not ready. They're not ready to fill that actual product and get it out the door on time. Mm-hmm. Or even large retailers with what I described earlier. They're, if they're not ready to ship that the correct way, then they're moving too fast. And so I try to prepare inventors that I speak to on my podcast about go ahead and learn about these facilities. So go over to FSI if you're here in Atlanta, take a tour, see how it works, see what the prices usually are for you know shipping your type of product. So you have some idea. And so you're ready to kind of roll into that phase when you are. You're probably not yet, but when you are, you know something about it and not be like I was where you're on, you know, because same thing goes for Shark Tank. Everybody I know, you know, all these people are trying out for it, reaching out and wanting advice to try out for the show. But if they get on tomorrow, it could air two months later. And are they ready for that? You know, are they ready to ship product all over the world? So just prepare, be prepared. (laughs) Yeah. And with physical products too, there's so much involved. There's manufacturing and, you know, just, I forget the term like getting it from one place to another. Yeah. Uh, yeah the supply chain, supply chain, right. Exactly. And logistics. And so, yeah, that that is amazing. Are you working on any new products right now? Yes, yes, we are. So we, we're launching one at Mom Genius very soon that I won't share yet just because we haven't, but we've got a couple more that we're developing and one is launching probably in the next month if it arrives on time. And then I have other products that I want to license out separate from that company. So I kind of just kind of, spread out what I've been working on. If it's a good fit for the right brand, then I move it over there. But but yeah, I'm working on a lot of different things right now. Great. Well, is there anything else you would like to share as far as failure or any advice that you would give to our listeners? I think the only other thing I'd share about failure is just know when to give up. I know there's a lot of entrepreneurs that I hate to encourage people to give up, but I have seen a lot that have stuck with it a little too long and you 
I don't know how you gauge your level of success. I don't know how you say, okay, it's time to throw in the towel. But I think some of them know that they're there and they just haven't and they're holding on for dear life. And what they're missing out on is that next product. Barbara Mm -hmm. once told me when I was struggling with Ava, you know, probably about six years in, she said, you know, you are not this product. You know, you've got much bigger things down the pipeline. Yes, you love your product and yes, it launched your career, but this is not you, you know? So I want people to, it sounds crazy to hold on tightly, but get ready to let go as well, you know, if you need to, because that's certainly where I was when I licensed it. I had to be able to give up the control of the company and know that it was the best for me. And it certainly was. It allowed me to grow and leaps and bounds Mm -hmm. above where I was before that. Sure. So if I go into CVS, will I find Ava the elephant now? Not right now. You won't. No. No. (laughs) So so CVS was our first, that was the big retailer that we had the issues at. And yeah, we ended up eventually pulling it out, but that was because the the amount of foot traffic in CVS was not exactly where we wanted it to be for Ava. It was a better fit. We were in Babies R Us by baby places where moms were going to get registered and whatnot before Babies R Us closed down. But it's not to say it won't be there again in the future. I think there's a spot for it, especially now that it's in Target and it's getting so much more traction that hopefully we'll be able to work on that relationship and do it again in the future. Sure. Great. Well, thank you so much for sharing your story today. And I wish you all the best in your business. And thank you for sharing your failures with us. (laughs) I really appreciate it. (laughs) Thank you. You have a great day. you. You too. Thanks, Tiffany. Bye. Karen, if I'm going to say one thing about this interview, I think it's it's too bad that you didn't have Ava the Elephant join to get the product side <laughs> of the story. You know, being stuck in the back of the store with all those canes, I just yeah. I can't stop thinking about how traumatic that must have been for Ava. Yes, poor Ava the Elephant. <laughs> yeah, I keep thinking about how traumatic it must have been for Tiffany. You know, you have your one big shot at success and then realizing that a lack of understanding of how the planogram works uh, and not yeah. knowing that it needed to be included in the contract could bring it all down. Yeah. You know, you can sing that Hamilton song, you know, not going to miss my shot (laughs) until you're (laughs) blue in the face. But sometimes you just don't know what you don't know. You have to know what you're shooting at, I guess. Yeah. (laughs) I guess. Yeah. I certainly didn't know what a planogram was before before I heard Tiffany's story. But hopefully what she learned and, and her experience is helpful to, you know, other people doing something similar, going into the retail space with a product idea of their own. You know, and and Tiffany also, another thing that she mentioned was that she was dealing with cancer this whole time um, on top of the business Mm -hmm. difficulty. And she didn't go into a lot of detail on that, but that I can just imagine that must have been a huge burden to add on top of everything. Yeah. And then, you know, just also the the pressure that she must have been feeling, you know, she has a Shark Tank investor supporting her and counting on this product to become a success. And I just would think that that would just add another layer of pressure and anxiety to, to everything. Yeah, definitely. But I love how, you know, she didn't have any experience creating a product, but she was able to recover and keep going and she just learned as she went. Yeah. Well, and I'm just glad Ava the elephant is properly accounted for on the planogram now. So <laughs> yeah. So she can be where she's supposed to be on store shelves across the country. I also realize I don't know Ava's pronouns, so we should probably figure that out. Yeah, we need to find that out. <laughs> Speaking of Ava the elephant, I wish that I would have had Ava the elephant when my daughter was small. I'm sure you oh, can yeah. relate, Ray, trying to give a small child medicine. It's not easy, yeah. but I'm glad she's out there continuing to help kids and, and parents. Yes. Thank you, Ava. Well, I got to say, thankfully, we didn't have to give our kid a lot of medicine when he was young. So 
I can't totally relate, but <laughs> you did remind me. I still have memories about trying to get our dogs to take medicine by, you know, yeah. stuffing pill- <laughs> pills in their food when I was yeah, growing up. So, yeah. so may- maybe that could be Tiffany's next product. Tiffany, a uh, free product idea for you. Well, as you know, each week we end the show with a more lighthearted failure story from a team member. Yes, we do. And this week we are so happy to have our senior podcast producer, Sarah Jane Huss, joining us to tell us about her failure story. Sarah Jane, welcome. Hello. Thanks for having me. What's up, SJ? Oh, hey. <laughs> hey. So we hear that you have a story about failure, and Ray and I are very anxious to hear it. <laughs> and let me also say that David, our other producer, shared a story, a failure story that was pretty, pretty good Ooh, okay. on one of our previous episodes. So you've got a high bar to, uh, to clear. To oh, clear, boy. yeah. <laughs> well, I have told him the story and it got a good laugh. So I'm hoping that that's a good indicator of where All I right. fall there. So we'll see. Let's hear what you got. All right. So when I was in college, I did a semester study abroad in Italy and I lived in Rome in a very Italian neighborhood, very few expats, but I had five roommates in our apartment. And so to give you a little bit of background, going into the semester abroad, I had six years of French and one single semester of Italian. So I was kind of just trying to make it as best I could in Italy (laughs) of what I had. (laughs) So in our neighborhood down the street, there was like this little, almost like a general store type thing, like very small because in Italy, at least Where we lived in Rome, there were not any like big box stores. So you had to go to all these individual stores to get what you needed, these different shops. So (laughs) there was this little general type store. And the first time we went in, I went in with one of my roommates who knew Italian a lot better than I did. And I'm kind of browsing and I hear her talk to the guy behind the counter. And she's like, in Italian, she says like, hi. And she says, Francoboli, which I took to be his name. Cause she had, she was someone who like knew everybody. She didn't know a stranger. And so I was like, okay, that's, you know, that's great. Like, and it's good to get to know the people in your neighborhood who, you know, run these shops and whatnot. So I already love this story. (laughs) So every time after that, when I would go into the store, I tried to be very personable and I would say, you know, like, buongiorno, Franco Bolli. Like, or sometimes I call him Franco because I was like, maybe his full name is Franco Boli. <laughs> and I'll just call him Franco, like for sure. Franco is a nickname for Francesco. So I was like, oh, sure. Making some assumptions here. So <laughs> we would go in a couple times a week. So every time I'm like saying hello or goodbye to him by name. And after about two months, I go to the store with my roommate, Janae. You really got your reps under you. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> a lot of time going in the store. We leave and I say goodbye to him by name. And as I am coming back, like as we're leaving, (laughs) I say goodbye. My friend Janae says, can I just ask you, like, why do you call him that? And I was like, well, that's his name. And she was like, no, Franco Boli is the word for stamps. (laughs) Like, (laughs) I had been calling this man stamps the entire time. And as soon as she said it, I was like, oh, my gosh, of course, my roommate that one time was buying stamps. Like, <laughs> hello, I'd like to buy some stamps. And this poor man, I called him Franco Boli this whole time. And he's probably just like, stupid American girl. Okay, bye. <laughs> like, have a great day. <laughs> so so he never gave you any indication that like anything was up? Never. That wasn't his name? Never. But that it was not his name. His name was not Franco <laughs> Boli, it turns out. So I was mortified. And I never went back. I found a different shop. Oh. <laughs> I, I, couldn't, I was like, oh my gosh, I can't walk in there. And then to try to explain to him in Italian, like, 
I'm sorry. I totally didn't understand your name. It wasn't stamps. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, you go buy your stamps elsewhere from, from that point on, huh? Well, I, I had always bought my stamps at the actual post office. So I had never like needed to buy stamps there. But even then, when I went to the post office, like I just I didn't even make a connection of any sort, which I don't really understand. Looking back, I'm like, well, that's stupid. <laughs> so. But the other thing I'd like to know is why no, like you went, did none of your friends ever or your friend who knew Italian better ever notice what you were doing? Or do you think they were just trying to let you make a fool of yourself? That is my question. Were they just like all having a laugh about it behind my back where they're like, you hear what SJ is calling him? Or I wonder too, if maybe they also maybe thought his name was Franco Boli, but also didn't call him that. They were like, is that right? (laughs) That can't be right. (laughs) So Love it. In any case, they were smarter than I was because they didn't call him that. They didn't. To his face, at least. But he will always be known as Franco Boli, at least. Franco Boli. At least on this podcast. It is a really good name, actually. Franco Boli. Yeah, Franco Boli. Tongue, yeah. <laughs> it does roll off the tongue. It does. <laughs> Maybe that should be the name of the next dog we get. It's Franco Boli in his honor. <laughs> I think so. I think so. Well, SJ, thank you for making us feel less alone in our failures. Thank you for sharing your story with us. Very welcome. You're now officially initiated into the Flops alumni for sharing your failure story. So welcome. Oh, thank you. There's more where that came from. Okay. Well, you're welcome back anytime to tell us more failure stories. (laughs) Perfect. For sure. So that's it for this episode of Flops. Thanks for joining us and we'll see you next week. Later. Thanks for listening to Flops. For more information on today's episode, including links and show notes, please visit smartpassiveincome.com forward slash flops. Special thanks to Tiffany Crummins for joining us on today's episode. Learn more about her and her product, Ava the Elephant, at tiffanycrummins.com. Join us next week for an object lesson in why not every passion needs to become a business. Your hosts are me, Karen Beatty, and my colleague, Ray Sylvester. Flops is a production of SPI Media. Our executive producer is Matt Gartland, and our series producers are David Grabowski and senior producer Sarah Jane Huss. Writing by Karen Beatty and Ray Sylvester. Editing and sound design by Paul Gregoris. Music by David Grabowski. See you next time. <laughs>